Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast, where we are exploring practical insight for social change. I'm your host, Andre Henry, and joining me from North Carolina is my co-host and friend, Alicia T. Crosby. And today on the show, we have Michael White, the co-founder of Occupy Wall Street. Micah describes himself as a lifelong activist who co-created Occupy, a global social movement that spread to 82 countries while an editor of Adbusters magazine, a frequent public speaker and prominent activist educator. He's the co-founder of Activist Grad School, an online school taught by and for experienced activists and the author of The End of Protests, a new playbook for revolution. We're looking forward to sharing the conversation with Micah, but how to do in that we felt it was important to give you a content note about today's episode. During the course of this interview, there is conversation around suicide and we wanted you as our listeners to have the ability to opt in or opt out. We know that everyone is at a different place and you know, holds different things in different ways at different times. And so if you need a reminder that it's okay to you know, kind of press pause and walk away, we wanted to give you the option to do so. I really appreciate that, Alicia. Like, this is also why I'm so happy that you're doing this with me because like, you're facilitating right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, we live in a world where it's not always valued, but we are in need of, of knowing what we're walking into conversationally. Yeah. And having listened to the interview before, like I know that there are you know, folks whose lives have been touched by suicide in different ways, whether it's that they themselves have had suicidal ideation or they are, have been in relationship with folks who've completed suicide. Yeah. It's important for us to have made note of this as a, as a space where we discuss social transformation because part of social transformation is consideration of wellness. And yeah. we want you to be well. We care. Yeah. So when it comes to the hope and hard pills parts of the conversations, like Micah definitely leans more to the hard pill side. Like, I wouldn't say that the interview is negative, <laughs> but um, it gets really deep and it gets really heavy in there. And so... Uh, Alicia, thank you for, for preparing us for that. So one of the interesting things about this interview is that you and Micah, I mean, you have a ton of like interesting conversation, but it seems that something that's pretty thematic in his, is in his interview and also in his book is this concept of, of formation. So like, I'd be interested in hearing a little bit, Dre, like what was like your formation, like in your justice seeking work? Do you remember like when you first became interested in injustice in like the places that you were formed? Yeah, I mean, I think this is really interesting, especially because you know, I don't really like the word activist very much and I really have a reluctance to even use it. And I've had different relationships with that idea of like, what does it mean to be an activist? And so I would say that like, I've always cared about injustice, you know, even as a little kid, you know, listening to Bob Marley, and, you know, Get Up, Stand Up was like one of my favorite songs when I was like nine years old. And I used to just read about the American Revolution all the time. It's like one of my favorite subjects in school. And, you know, the idea of standing up to, you know, the injustice of taxation without representation um, and all that kind of thing. But I don't think I considered myself an activist until maybe 2016, 2017, when I started getting a lot more active around racial justice. Around that time, I felt like, Mm, I don't know if that's a label that I want to wear, you know, because I also, I honestly thought that like, you know, the people who are doing things like Micah, you know, when people listen to the interview, they'll, they'll hear like, you know, Micah was 
one of the co-founders of an international movement. Like that's an activist, you know? And in my reading, which I would say like 2016 was really the genesis of like some very serious reading about social change and nonviolence and reading all these different um, thinkers that that was really formative for me in my, the way that I live in the world now and the work that I'm doing. And in doing that, I, I came back to the idea that like, even using the word activists automatically causes some people to feel excluded, right? Because it feels like they have to, I don't know, do something dramatic or be like heroic or something like, you know what I mean? Just to be impressive in some way. Yeah. <laughs> or even to adopt postures that may not come natural to them. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, that was definitely my story. So like, I kind of, it's, it's just interesting. Like, I don't think we've ever like had like this, this conversation. No, we've um, not. But I was kind of similar. Like I was a kid who was super interested in injustice and would like, find ways to speak out about it. I mean, even, you know, you're like a little kid. Well, actually a lot of younger kids now have a better understanding about like equity. But as a little kid, like I didn't, like I didn't have parents, you know, who like were employing like, you know, critical race theory or whatever. And like, and the information of me is as a young person. But Mm -hmm. I remember being able to see racial disparities in the way that I was treated and then the way that like, students of other backgrounds were treated and like call and attention to it, like in my like elementary and like middle schools. Mm-hmm. And, but that's a form of like justice seeking. But like, I don't think I employed the language of, of activism um, as, as, uh, as a self-descriptor, yeah. maybe until 2015. And it was literally because I, I found the, the concept of sacred activism like where spirituality was a part of activism, like that's what made me feel comfortable enough to take yeah. on that that label for self. Mm-hmm. Like being able to like look at like healing and look at, you know, spiritual wellness in addition to social transformation, social change, and like seeing that that was like a critical thread in it, or it could be, and it was for some people, that's what let me call myself an activist because I resisted it like for years, even even though I found myself being like more formally involved in things like protests, um, you know, as, as far back as like maybe like 2012 or 2013, it still mm-hmm. took me some years to be able to like, to be able to call myself an activist. But I think that that like, that matters, like how we self-describe. And I think maybe after we get through the interview, I might have some questions about that, perhaps maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting too, because Micah in his book, like, he goes through his own formation and talks about like himself being in high school and being a young person and his justice seeking and what that looks like. And it makes, it makes me think of something like one of the reasons why I wanted to start doing a podcast is because I feel like we've kind of stalled when it comes to racial justice in America. Like there's a lot of activity and there's a lot of great work going on. But I feel like my experience is like I'm having the same conversations with people over and over again and wondering, like, what do we need? What is the obstacle? What's in our way of actually making progress? And I think that you could summarize Micah's answer to that question as like, it's not about what we need to do, but who we need to become, you know? So what do you think about that? <laughs> I think that's actually <laughs> the perfect logic point for this week's interview. 
But when we come back in conversation, maybe that's something that we could talk about a little bit more. Okay, but before we get into Micah's interview, it's time for something entirely different. This has nothing to do with pursuing justice. It's just October. And around this time of year, I release a few love songs, some cover songs, because it's cuffing season. And so we're gonna play one, we're gonna play part of one for you now. And if you wanna hear the whole playlist, you've gotta become a patron. You gotta join our Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so right now we're gonna play a little bit of a song for you and then Micah's gonna come and talk to us about the end of protest and his activist grad school project and starting an international movement and all those other amazing things. So I hope you enjoy the song. I think we're close enough Could I lock in your love? I think we're close enough Could I lock in your love? Now I've got you in my space I won't let go of you Shackled in my embrace I'm latching on to you To you Hey Micah, how's it going today? Good, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Um, Thank you so much for spending some time with me to talk about social change and protests and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So I've been following you on Twitter and watching you on YouTube, and I read your book, The End of Process, and you have kind of a slogan that you're using. It says, protest is broken. And I wonder if you could explain what you mean by that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think so. I mean, just to give a sense of like where I'm coming from, you know, I've been an activist my entire life. I started doing activism when I was 13. I had like, a, you know, a string of various f- failures and successes and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then when I was you know, 28, I was working for a magazine called Adbusters, wherein we basically came up with the idea for Occupy Wall Street. Um, and so when I talk about protests being broken, it's really a reflection on the last, like, you know, 25 years of activism that I've been doing yeah. and feeling like that a lot of the stories that we tell as activists about how social change will be achieved are actually false. And that if you actually look at this, look at the effects of our activism in the short term, like, it's very hard to find real examples of us winning despite the like mm. kind of you know lofty rhetoric that we often yeah. and positivity because americans are very positive so we're often very positive even about our failures yeah um yeah so, so by saying it's broken basically is i'm trying to point to something about you know that we're that the behaviors that we're doing are not achieving the goals that we want mm. and let's talk about occupy just for a moment because in your book you mentioned that occupy is a constructive failure and i wondered if you might unpack that a little bit yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the point is that in many ways, I mean, now it's been, you know, it's getting on eight years or whatever since Occupy. And I think a lot of younger activists who are now, um, you know, leading movements and all this kind of stuff and participating in movements don't really remember Occupy as much. Um, but basically, you know, from from my perspective, Occupy Wall Street in many ways was like the the perfect social movement, as it were, in the sense that it was largely nonviolent. It, it involved all different kinds of people across demographics, you had extremely rich people, celebrities, you had extremely poor people, homeless people, working class people. It also cut across demographics in the sense of race and and ideology. You had people who are on the right who are part of Occupy because it spread to so many places. It spread to 82 countries and a thousand cities. So each city kind of brought with it who it already was, but joined the movement in this this kind of magical way. 
And so in a sense, we created what we had been trying to do as activists, you know, for years since the 70s, mm -hmm. basically, as we created it. it was a mass broad based social movement. Right. And it failed. And so in failing, I called it a constructive failure, because obviously, it wasn't a total failure, like it did achieve some good things changing the discourse and everything. But it was constructive, because it allowed us to kind of see that 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 paradigm or that storyline that we've been telling about social activism isn't true, and that we can now move beyond it if we if we have the courage to. And I think that's one of the problems is that there is a, it's hard to, even if you see that it's not working, it's very hard to change one's ways. Yeah, I want to get into that. But before before we can, I think that we got to ask, what is the paradigm that you're mentioning that you feel like, what's the false story that we believed that, that you think that we, we needs to be revised? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think like kind of reflecting on Occupy Wall Street, reflecting on my experience as an activist, you know, the first thing when I tried to understand why did protests fail, you know, like the first explanations that I came to were like strategic and tactical. So it was like mm -hmm. the strategic failure um, basically is this is this idea that um, that if we can get lots of people into the streets who are articulating what they want, then our governments will have to listen to us because our governments are representative. We live in a democracy and their authority is supposed to derive from the consent of the people. So this kind of this like, it's kind mm. of like a mixture of political theory with magical thinking, but you know what I mean? Like, but it does kind of make sense. Cause it's like, yeah, like if like, this was really strong when I was part of the anti-war movement, anti-Iraq war movement. It's like, yeah, like if our government wants to go to war with Iraq, but we show them that everyone who lives in our country doesn't want that, well, then they can't go, you know, like, but <laughs> it's not true. It's not true. So that's, that's the first layer. And then there's like, and then it was like kind of tactical errors and, and like things like, oh, like, you know, these one-off one marches definitely aren't working. And but basically the point is that um, I used to think that it was fixable from like a tactical or strategic perspective, but now I think maybe it's deeper. Maybe it has something to do with instead, like what kind of activists are being created and like, what are the kind of people that become activists? And like, maybe that's, maybe it's something deeper that like we are flawed. Like we're not the fighters that we need. That's kind of like what I'm thinking about now. Mm, interesting. And I, so you have this program that you, that you founded or started. I'm not sure what the right word is, but activist grad school out of UCLA. And is that in some way, I'm assuming a, an answer to, to what you feel is broken about protests? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a, it's at least like an attempt to experiment. So like, Activist Graduate School, the way it works is that we are, we're an online school for activists. You don't have to have a college degree or anything to join. And we film, we teach and then film courses at universities. So we, we taught and filmed a class at Bard College, which people can take now online. And we also taught and filmed one at UCLA that we're going to make available in July. And then mm -hmm. we pair it with additional content. So like we filmed interviews with Alicia Garza from, you know, co-creator of Black Lives Matter and like um, Jason Russell from Coney 2012. And basically the goal is to was the goal is to basically imagine what a school that is explicitly about creating better activists would look like. And mm. I think but I think I do think that through the process of trying to develop a school like that, it is also to me revealed just how um how activism is so like the culture of activism needs so much work that I don't <laughs> that I'm like <laughs> it's, it's really hard because I, I mean, I'm an activist, but I'm starting to see that like even like the culture of activism itself is like holding us back. So oh, I'm yeah. trying to like, I don't know. It's hard. Yeah. Could you say more about that? What do you about activist culture and what's, you know, what the pitfalls yeah. are there? I mean, I think this is where kind of where my latest thinking is going is about like if you if you think, for example, like if you imagine like Martin Luther King. OK, like so if you mm -hmm. look at like Martin Luther King, who 
obviously everyone, you know, he's a great activist. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> one of the things that happens is that he's, he gets arrested, right. And he writes this, this letter from a Birmingham jail that we all kind of read. And if you haven't read that as an activist, like absolutely everyone has to read this letter because yeah. what happens that's so interesting is he talks about how the existing desegregation movement was attacking him. So he was receiving, he was, he was arrested by the state. And then in jail, what he's thinking about is how people in his own movement are saying he's using the wrong tactics. He's using the wrong strategies. He shouldn't mm -hmm. be doing direct action, civil disobedience. They told him mm -hmm. this. And he, mm -hmm. and he has to write this letter to tell them why they're wrong. And the, the point of this story, I think a lot of times we interpret this story at a kind of a, a strategic and tactical level and say like, oh, he had, the he had the better strategy. But actually the point of the story for me is that he had the power to resist the pressure to conform from the larger movement and that's oh, wow. yeah and that's what's lacking today like typical activists today cannot like if the movement tells them not to do something they just don't do it <laughs> you know what i mean but the, <laughs> the movement told martin luther king stop using civil disobedience and he's like no i have to use civil disobedience this is how we do it and he suffered mm -hmm. for, for saying that you know until later he becomes this great hero but it's the same thing today like oftentimes the movement is doing things that we know are not going to work but to say that means that we get punished or, or ostracized or whatever, mm. or we just don't have the courage to say that. So that's kind of where I'm seeing the problems being. So, Michael, let me ask you a question. Are there any times when you see people say, you know, they're outraged about something that happens and they go, okay, we're going to do this tactic or we're going to do that. And you just sit back into yourself and go, yeah, it's not going to work. <laughs> but that's, I mean, <laughs> yeah, because that's all of activism. But the problem with it is that, this is the challenge is that it's so hard to predict what will work. And so, yeah, because with, with, if you think about social revolutions, they often come as a surprise to their creators and the movements that succeed are precisely often the ones that people think aren't going to work. Mm. So even though I myself might be like, that's not going to work. It's very hard to say, to say it's not going to work because, yeah. and so it is, it's really difficult. I mean, I think that I tend to think that things, like if I think that something's not going to work, but I haven't seen it before, then I might give it the benefit of the doubt. But if I see something like, you know, March for Our Lives, where it's like, oh, one day March. Okay. I have seen that before. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so, and that's, you know, it's hard though, because yeah, yeah whatever. So. so what do you think about the underlying idea of non, of people power, people power that mm. people really appeal to in nonviolent movements? Do you think that there's something flawed about the way that flawed about that idea? Do you think that that's not true or is it the way that we are building our strategies and tactics on that principle? Yeah. Well, I mean, I absolutely, I mean, as an activist and, you know, as someone who's like looked at obviously revolution and stuff like this, obviously I think that, that, that something like people power exists. So like, so that we know, we know as a, for a fact that in human history, the people, the poorest people, the quote unquote weakest people have risen up. They've overthrown the most powerful, the richest people. Like it's happened over and over and over again for like 5,000 mm -hmm. years. So we know that, that that something like people power exists. Mm -hmm. I think that what might not exist is some of these notions of basically where people power intersects with like the sovereignty of our governments. So it has, uh -huh. like we know that the people have the capacity to rise up and overthrow the presidency, but mm -hmm. we but we, but we, where we make a mistake is we think that that power derives from like their capacity as citizens to like express themselves in a forum or march and get their message across or, right. you know, that's, that's where I think it starts to be problematic. Yeah. I hear that. You ever sit on your front porch with an Arnold, Arnold Palmer and think about, you know, if only this happened in Occupy, we would have made yeah. more of a difference. 
Um, I try not to get into that kind of stuff because I think that's like totally depressing. I mean, I think, yeah, especially now, I mean, it's really hard. Like I've been an activist so long, you know, like you, there's like, that's, that's kind of like toxic thinking. I mean, especially yeah. now you, you, these, these activists who are, and this is something that people need to be thinking about is there's these activists now who are just killing themselves. And it's like, like, so there's been, I'm just kind of, yeah, you mentioned it. that the other day on Twitter oh and I, I wanted to ask you about that as well. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, I was, I went to Egypt, like, um, a couple years ago or whatever, and I met with some of the people, activists who were in the Tahrir Square, the Arab Spring and stuff. And they were talking about how activists were so demoralized in Egypt that they were like committing suicide. And I was like, wow, that's intense. And now in America, that's what's happening. So we have had, you know, and, uh, you know, there's been three apparent suicides of Ferguson activists. Some people are saying not suicides, but whatever. Three, at least three apparent suicides. Two Parkland mm-hmm. survivors have killed themselves. And now an activist father uh, who was a, you know, her child died in Sandy Hook has killed himself. So Wow. And what's happening is that activists are what they're they're realizing is like, oh, this isn't working. And because we don't have an activist culture that's allowed that you're allowed to say that, then yeah. people kill themselves. Because if if those if those Ferguson activists were allowed to say, hey guys, this isn't working, like I need to talk about this, I'm sure that they would have felt a lot better because once you realize that it isn't working, you can think of strategies that could make it work. Yeah. But I think there's just a pressure in the movement that you're just not allowed to say that. And so it's really troubling. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned also, and a part of your mission with activist grad school is that we need to become a certain, like maybe the, maybe the quality of activism and activists would make a difference. Yeah. And so I wondered, what do you think, who do you think we need to become in order to see the change that we want? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if you think about what kind of person are we trying to create, I think it's the kind of, it is the kind of person that is going to basically fight on behalf of the movement but differently so this is someone who's going to be like yes i'm trying to abolish slavery but i'm going to pursue a method that is you know a different from even other what other people are doing even if my mentors and my friends and everyone's telling me that's the wrong path so mm. i can't so it has to be someone who like can come out of a school and like fight the school in this weird way so it's, really, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's hard you know yeah yeah because if i said to myself oh i need to create another martin luther king it's like well that's what we've been trying to do with building community organizers and all this kind of stuff like that doesn't work you can't predefine all we know about this type of person is that they are someone who's an iconoclast you can't tell them to respect some sacred cows like that's not going to work you have to so i think maybe it's a process of teaching them sacred cows and then letting them destroy them or i don't know what it is but basically it's someone who's a who's a heterodox thinker and un, you know unwilling to to compromise and is fighting differently, but it's still part of the movement and still fighting for what we want as a movement. Yeah, I feel like we've got to give people like one like idea that's kind of out of the box. And there's one in your book that like it, I still I can't wrap my brain around it. Okay, so I'm just gonna throw it out at you. Um, so I think it's mundialization. Is that how you pronounce that? Okay, mundialization. Yeah, and. So there's one section in the book, in the end of protest, where you talk about people on different sides of the border, of the Canadian border, Canada-US border, and how they could open that up. And you see how, like, I can't even, I can't even repeat it because because it's something that it it never, like, would have occurred to me. And it's hard for me to wrap my brain around. So I don't know, like, do you want to, would you be willing to maybe unpack that idea? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think the idea is like to imagine like how if we were going to um, try to um, like destroy the borders. I mean, I, I think that I'm coming out of a tradition like I'm a 
I'm a I'm a globalist, you know. Like I believe okay. that we should create a one world government that's that's democratically run, like really democratically run by mm-hmm. by 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 humans. You know, I think that that to me seems to be ultimately the real solution to things like climate change, income inequality, even the housing crisis, and and you know the appropriate allocation of like housing stock around the world and all this kind of stuff. Like all of this to me mm-hmm. seems like something that's ultimately like we need a global we need a global governance of some kind. And so yeah. in the book, I tried to imagine one way that could happen. And I thought about, well, maybe there's some way that you could like, you know, literally assert citizen sovereignty over the border of one's country and, and how that would have, that's a tremendous threat to the authority of the state and what kind of movement would result from, from that um, type mm-hmm. of action and this kind of thing, which, which coincidentally is one of the reasons why I think the indigenous movements, like we're going to continue to see their, them coming up because like, that's, that's, that's who they are. Like indigenous populations who live on the U S Canada border don't, you know, like their tribe extends on both sides. They are like really a manifestation of like the fact that this border is an illusion. Um, Mm. And so maybe we'll see some protests from that community around this, or I don't know. Yeah. So like maybe the idea is that there's an activist group that is lobbying or whatever the word is, you know, they're campaigning for the, that, that border, you know, is open right on both sides of it. Right. Got you. Got you. Yeah, that's that's I guess that's the kind of thing. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about is trying to just think outside the box. I really appreciate you for doing that. And um, you have a mailing list where people can you have a mailing list that I'm on that people can also explore those kinds of things that you send out. Yeah. And so I just want to thank you again for your time and ask you one more question. Okay. because obviously, you know, you haven't given up on this like you. You started a program for to help activists mm-hmm. become the kind of person that you believe they need to be. And so I want to ask you, what what keeps you going? You know, what what keeps you from giving up? Mm. Well, I mean, I think I have. So basically, I have like a, a simple uh, rule, which is that it seems to me like that revolutions tend to occur when people think they are most they are least likely to occur. Like pe- revolutions tend to occur when people have actually lost hope, not when they have a tremendous amount of hope. Like the Russian revolution, all these things, they always happen at the lowest point. So whenever I'm feeling like, oh, I've reached the lowest point, then I'm just reminded like, oh, this could be the point at which the revolution comes from. So it's kind of a... Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. That is so awesome. Well, um, thanks again, Micah, so much for your time. And um, where can people sign up find more information about Activist Grad School? Yeah, just head over to activistgraduateschool.org. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks again. And yeah, talk to you later. Cool. Have a great day. No, it doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be. No, doesn't have to be this way. So it's interesting to talk with one of the co-founders of Occupy and to get that perspective, which brings up a lot of questions about what is success and what is failure for people who are pursuing social change. Mm -hmm. And I think that like our orientation towards social change might actually be what helps us define what success and failure look like because like our values are different. So what success and failure to an organizer may not be success and failure to an activist. Mm. And, you know, what success and failure to one activist may not be success and failure to another. Like so much of this has to do with formation. Like, what do you hold to be true? Like, what are the systems that you're employing to understand what these things look like? In this conversation, like, I really did, like, question, like, would someone who self-describes as an organizer, right, 
Mm-hmm. Because like this is a term that has like specific connotations. Yeah. Like, if someone was an organizer, would they see would they too see Occupy as a failure? Or would they see it as given rise to other things? And that's what made it successful. Like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. But I find it so interesting that Micah's response basically to, you know, the question of what do we need to do to keep pushing these different victories that we look at in the past? Mm-hmm. How do we keep move them forward? Because the civil rights movement didn't accomplish everything that the activists and organizers set out to do. And Occupy didn't accomplish everything that the activists and organizers set out to do? What do we do to push it forward? And that Micah's response seems to be, it's not about what we need to do, but who we need to become. And I, I hear a lot of people talk about that. And I always find it interesting because it's not the first place that I go. Like I don't go straight to formation, mm-hmm. but, but I find it interesting. And I know that you have to have thoughts about it. <laughs> it's such a yeah. part of your work and what you do. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that it's an either or question. I yeah. think it's both. It's about, it is about what we do and who we become because who we become determines what we will do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like he mentions, you know, this, this activist graduate school and that he, I think it was like UCLA that he was doing this out of and like working with other institutions. But like, I had wondered in him speaking about like, you know, this development of school for formation, like how much he had or hadn't, um, tapped into like the the resources and the history um, of other form other formative spaces. Mm-hmm. So like what came to mind like when I was listening to the interview was about the important role of freedom schools. Yeah. Um, and you know, other spaces of formation like the People's Hub or like the Highlander Center. Mm-hmm. Like these are places, you know, that both in the digital commons, like looking at something like the People's Hub and Highlander, you know, that's uh, in is it Newmarket? Yeah, it's, oh. it's in Tennessee. I can't remember exactly what town. Yeah. And that's neither here nor there, but it's in Tennessee. But like people for decades, probably at this point close to like a hundred years, have been getting formed in in educational centers, you know, that so I don't know. Activists haven't been without formation. Yeah. Um I guess I'm wondering how it is that we're describing activism. Because there has been space for people to be formed. I just wonder if folks in becoming aware of justice, becoming aware specifically the need for justice, understand that formation is a part of what they need to commit to. Yeah. And one question that I have when we talk about this is, okay, so we're talking about like, who do we need to become, right? And the thing that I don't want to do is scare people away by saying like, you have to become an activist, you know, because there are a lot of people that 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 title means something very specific to them, you know? And it might mean like they're blocking traffic or, you know, they're marching and things like that. And we need people to block traffic and we need people to march. But not everybody has the kind of lifestyle or temperament or personality to do the things that, you know, end up on the evening news, right? And so I wonder a lot about, you know, the person who says like, I, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a single mom and I have four kids and, you know, I have a full-time job and I want to be a part of social change, but I'm not trying to go to Highlander Center or activist grad school or nothing like that, you know? it's like, absolutely, but it doesn't mean that, like, folks can't get involved. 
And so, right. like, you know, one of the things that Micah did in the interview was question whether or not we're the fighters that we need. And I honestly want to push at that. Um, I think we are who we need. I mm. think that that single mom with the four kids, I think that the person who doesn't have interest in going to, like, these, you know, schools, you know, whether they be connected to UCLA, they be the local freedom school, they be a historic civil rights training center, like, that's not where their energy is at. I think that everyone still has a role, but I think that like the biggest question, and I think this is a thing that I'm going to like consistently like lean into and like and push, push people to consider is like, where are you like, what do you have the capacity to do? Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think that like, that's the thing that like everyone can commit to is just mm-hmm. thinking through. It's like, what do I bring? What resources do I have? What skills do I have? Right. And how can I utilize those for the sake of social change? Yeah. And I'm thinking like specifically, like, how do, how do those, how do those folks who say, listen, like, I'm almost at capacity. Like, please don't tell me that, like, I need to go to a momentum training over the weekend and spend $500 or something like that. Right. Yeah. Which is something I would totally do because I love this. (laughs) I love this. (laughs) And I'm, I'm looking forward to taking some classes from activist grad school and stuff like that. But um, when you were saying that, I thought of like a part of those questions are also like, what do I need to know? Right. Like, mm-hmm. OK, maybe I'm at capacity and what am, what are my gifts and what are my talents? What are my passions? What are the opportunities? But also like in in just getting involved, like the questions of what do I need to know to to be involved in the way that I want to will also emerge. And that's what emerged for me in my own journey. And I'm sure that emerged for you. Um and I bring that up because I'm like, I think when we talk about folks who are doing work like you, like you and myself and like Micah and others, like, I think that people see you cross a threshold where you're no longer like a normal person who was provoked by the, situ- the situations and circumstances of your context in your life and just decided that you're going to get involved. Like you become the, the activist, the organizer, right? And so you're a special person <laughs> in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, but but every person like even even like Gandhi you know was an ordinary dude he got beat up on a train one time for being brown he was a lawyer at the time and not a very good one and he said that he had to face a decision that night and the decision was continue to get beat up on trains for being brown or fight for the liberation of his people and he decided to do the latter and it's hard to even bring up a name like his because like of the Mahatma, you know, icon iconography, you know, the, yeah. the bigness of his name and story. But I'm saying like, even, even the people that we, that some of us admire most are just people. And the path, the path kind of sets in front of you, you know, you need to know about this. So read this book or watch this video or talk to this person or download mm-hmm. this podcast, you know, and that's that all of that doing all of I mean like definitely like make space in yourself to to educate yourself and like to learn new things but also like you know I think it's important to do check-ins around wellness like there are are a lot of folks you know who have felt all of those pressures to do to do and to learn and to commit and to be in the streets and to be serving in different capacities and like committed to this direct action and to this you know this, that, and the third form of protest and have gotten to the place where they are so far over capacity and 
they're no longer here with us. Yeah, yeah. And I'm one of the questions that I had um, as I was listening and reflecting on that because I think about you know folks who have completed suicide and those who have suicidal ideations and how you know those things are connected to their need for and love of justice. It made me wonder what sorts of mental health and movement supports we might need to be present to each other's pain, um, as well as to be aware of and present to the compromises to our individual and collective wellness. Because hmm. there are so many of us who are burned out. Yeah, yeah. We feel like we're stretched to our end. I mean, like for some of you listeners, like, you know, this is, you're at the, the beginnings of this. And there's a lot of like energy that you have, like to work for equity and to work for social transformation. Mm-hmm. But there are other listeners like where you've been this in a while and like you you feel beat down on by the systems, but also by like what's happening in your day-to-day lives. Right. If you don't stop being yourselves, you don't stop having the issues and the challenges that you confront in the world just because you started to do this work of social transformation. Hell, you now have more things to think about than not. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I'm just wondering what sorts of, of supports are you needing and what supports have you found that you could potentially share with others? Hmm. Some of those supports may be spiritual. Like Michael said um, that a true revolution is political and it's social. But I think that there's something to note in the ways in which revolutions can also be deeply spiritual and can draw off of and utilize spiritual resources. And when I say spiritual, I don't mean like any specific like, you know, religion. Um, that's not what I'm advocating for here. But like, I think, I, like, I hold to be true that we are mind, body, and spirit. And like, when I say spirit, I mean, we make sense of things beyond ourselves. Mm-hmm. you know, and in that meaning making, like that's something. And sometimes yeah. that lives out through religion. And like sometimes like, you know, we employ religious practices and rituals and sing songs and read sacred words. Um, but I'm wondering as a part of like us considering what wellness is and what possibilities are, um, what it can mean for us to like, to think about that utilizing a spiritual lens as well as a political and social one. But listeners, I'm wondering what you're considering and what it might mean for you to find the courage to try new things. Hmm. Andre and I have both shared um, the things that we've taken on, but what new things are you engaging to help you commit to social transformation work in more dynamic and sustainable ways? We try to leave you with some parting questions and there'll definitely be some more questions, you know, in the notes for this and online in our community. But that's the one I want to leave you with today. What are the new things that you're engaging, that you're trying, that are going to help you commit to social transformation work in more dynamic and sustainable ways? Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts also helps us get into more ears and minds. This podcast is made possible by our fantastic patrons. Thank you for being a part of our work at Hope and Hard Pills. 
As usual, you'll get the uncut extended version of this episode on Patreon. If you want to join in on the work on our Patreon community, just look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. To go deeper, get subscribed to our email newsletter. Head over to andrerhenry.com and click join the movement where you'll get practical insight on anti-racism and social change every week. And you'll never miss a new article, song, or podcast episode. You can also follow Andre Henry on Facebook and Instagram at the Andre Henry. Connect with Alicia on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alicia T. Crosby and her website, aliciatcrosby.com. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. See you next time. Peace. Peace.